0: Part Three, of Life of Plotinus by Porphyry, translated by Kenneth Sylvan Guthrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Nineteen. How the works of Plotinus were put into shape. You may judge of the high opinion of Plotinus held by Longinus, from a part of a letter he addressed to me. I was in Sicily. He wished me to visit him in Phoenicia, and desired me to bring him a copy of the works of that philosopher. This is what he wrote to me about the matter. Please send me the works, or rather bring them with you, for I shall never cease begging you to travel in this one of all other countries, were it only because of our ancient friendship, and of the sweetness of the air, which would so well suit your ruined health. For you must not expect to find any new knowledge here when you visit us. Whatever your expectations may be, do not expect to find anything new here, nor even the ancient works of myself, Longinus, that you say are lost. There is such a scarcity of copyists here, that since I have been here I have hardly been able to get what I lacked of Plotinus here, by inducing my copyist to abandon his usual occupations to devote himself exclusively to this work. Now that I have those works of Plotinus you sent me, I think I have them all, but these that I have are imperfect, being full of errors. I had supposed that our friend Amelius had corrected the errors of the copyist, but his occupations have been too pressing to allow of his attending to this. However passionately I desire to examine what Plotinus has written about the soul, and about existence, I do not know what use to make of his writings. These are precisely those of his works that have been most miswritten by the copyists. That is why I wish you would send them to me transcribed exactly. I would compare the copies and return them promptly. I repeat, that I beg you not to send them, but to bring them yourself, with the other works of Plotinus, which might have escaped Amelius. All those he brought here I have had transcribed exactly, for why should I not most zealously seek work so precious? I have often told you, both when we were together and apart, and when you were at Tyre, that Plotinus's works contained reasonings of which I did not approve, but that I liked and admired his method of writing, his concise and forceful style, and the genuinely philosophical arrangement of his discussions. I am persuaded that those who seek the truth must place the works of Plotinus among the most learned. 20. Opinion of Longinus, the great critic, about Plotinus. I have made this rather long quotation only to show what was thought of Plotinus by the greatest critic of our days, the man who had examined all the works of his time. At first, Longinus had scorned Plotinus. Because he had relied on the reports of people ignorant of philosophy, moreover, Longinus supposed that the copy of the works of Plotinus he had received from Amelius was defective because he was not yet accustomed to the style of Plotinus. Nevertheless, if any one had the works of Plotinus in their purity, it was certainly Amelius who possessed a copy made upon the originals themselves. I will further add what was written by Longinus about Plotinus, Amelius, and the other philosophers of his time, so that the reader may better appreciate this great critic's high opinion of them. This book, directed against Plotinus and Gentilianus Amelius, is entitled of the limit of good and evil and begins as follows there were o marcellus Orontius, many philosophers in our time and especially in the first years of our childhood for it is useless to complain of their rarity at the present but when i was still a youth there were still a rather goodly number of men celebrated as philosophers i was fortunate enough to get acquainted with all of them because i travelled early with our parents in many countries visiting many nations and towns i entered into personal relations with such of these men as were still alive among these philosophers some committed their teachings to writings with the purpose of being useful to posterity, while others thought that it was sufficient for them to explain their opinions to their disciples. Among the former are the Platonists, Euclid, Democritus, who wrote commentaries on the Alcibiades, on the Phaedo, and on the metaphysics of Aristotle, Proclinus, who dwelt in the Troid Plotinus, and his disciple Gentilianus Amelius, who are at present teaching at Rome, the Stoics Themistocles, Phibian, and both Annius and Medeus, who were much talked of only recently, and the peripatetician Heliodorus of Alexandria. Among those who did not write their teachings are the Platonists, Ammonius, Saccus, and the pagan Origen, who lived with him for a long while, and who excelled among the philosophers of that period. Also Theodotus and Eubulus, who taught at Athens. Of course, they did write a little, Origen, for instance, wrote about the guardian spirits, and Eubulus wrote commentaries on the Philippus and on the Gorgias, and observations on Aristotle's objections against Plato's Republic. However, these works are not considerable enough to rank their authors among those who have seriously treated of philosophy for these little works were by them written only incidentally and they did not make writing their principal occupation the stoics herminus lysimachus athenaeus and musonius author of memorable events translated in greek by claudius Pollio, who lived at athens the peripateticians ammonius and ptolemy who were the most learned of their contemporaries especially ammonius whose erudition was unequalled none of these philosophers wrote any important work they limited themselves to writing poems or festal orations which have been preserved in spite of them i doubt very much that they wished to be known by posterity, merely by books so small and unrepresentative, since they had neglected to acquaint us with their teachings in more significant works. Among those who have left written works, some have done no more than gather or transcribe what has been left to us from the ancient philosophers. Among these are Euclid, Democritus, and Proclinus. Others limited themselves to recalling some details extracted from ancient histories, and they tried to compose books with the same materials as their predecessors, as did Annius, Medius, and Febio, the latter one trying to make himself famous by style rather than by thought. To these we might add, heliodorus who has put in his writings nothing that had not been said by the ancients without adding any philosophical explanation but Plotinus and gentilianus amelius have shown that they really made a profession of being writers both by the great number of questions they treated and by the originality of their doctrines Plotinus explained the principles of Pythagoras and Plato more clearly than his predecessors. For neither Numenius, nor Cronius, nor Moderatus, nor Thrasyllus come anywhere near the precision of Plotinus when they touch on the same topics. Amelius tried to follow in his footsteps, and adopted the greater part of his ideas but differs from him in the verbosity of his demonstrations, and the diffusion of his style. The writings of these two men alone deserve special consideration. For what is the use of criticizing the works of imitators? Had we not better study the authors whose works they copied, without any additions, either in essential points or in argumentation, doing no more than choosing out the best? This has been our method of procedure in our controversy with Gentilianus Amelius's strictures on justice, in Plato's works, and in my examination of Plotinus's books on the ideas. So, when our mutual friends, Basil of Tyre, Porphyry, who has written much on the lines of Plotinus, having even preferred the teachings of Plotinus to my own, as he had been my pupil, undertook to demonstrate that Plotinus's views about the ideas were better than my own, I have fully refuted his contentions, proving that he was wrong in changing his views on the subject. Besides, I have criticized several opinions of Cantilianus Amelius and Plotinus as, for instance, in the Letter to Amelius, which is long enough to form a whole book. I wrote it to answer a letter sent me from Rome by Amelius, which was entitled The Characteristics of the Philosophy of Plotinus. I, however, limited myself to entitling my little work, A Letter to Amelius. 21. Results of Longinus's Criticism and Vindication of Plotinus's Originality From the above it will be seen that Plotinus and Amelius are superior to all their contemporaries by the great number of questions they consider, and by the originality of their system. That Plotinus had not appropriated the opinions of Numenius, and that he did not even follow them, that he had really profited by the opinions of the Pythagoreans and of Plato. Further, that he was more precise than Numenius, Cronius, and Thrasyllus. After having said that Amelius followed in the footsteps of Plotinus, but that he was prolix and diffuse in his expositions, which characteristic forms the difference between their styles, he speaks of me who at that time had known Plotinus for only a short time, and says, "'Our mutual friends, Basil, king of Tyre, Porphyry, who has written much, taking Plotinus as his model. By that he means that I have avoided the rather unphilosophical diffuseness of Amelius, and have imitated the concise style of Plotinus.' The quotation of the judgment of this famous man, the first critic of his day, should decide of the reverence due to our philosopher, Plotinus. If I had been able to visit Longinus when he begged me to do so, he would not have undertaken the refutation he wrote, before having clearly understood Plotinus's system. Twenty-two. THE APOLLONIAN ORACLE ABOUT PLOTINUS But when I have a long oracle of Apollo to quote, why should I delay over a letter of Longinus's, or in the words of the proverb quoted in Iliad book 22, 126, and Hesiod, Theogony 35? Why should I dally near the oak-trees or the rock if the testimony of the wise is to be adduced who is wiser than apollo a deity who said of himself i know the number of the grains of sand and the extent of the ocean i understand the dust and i hear him who does not speak this was the divinity had said that socrates was the wisest of men and on being consulted by amelius to discover what had become of the soul of Plotinus, said let me sing an immortal hymn to my dear friend drawing my golden bow i will elicit melodious sounds from my lyre i also invoke the symphonic voice of the choir of muses whose harmonious power raises exultant paeans as they once sang in chorus in praise of achilles a homeric song in divine inspiration sacred choir of muses let us together celebrate this man for long-haired apollo is among you o deity who formerly wert a man but now approachest the divine host of guardian-spirits, delivered from the narrowing bonds of necessity that enchains man while in the body, and from the tumult caused by the confusing whirlwind of the passions of the body, sustained by the vigour of thy mind, thou hastenest to swim, and like the sage Ulysses in Phaeacia, to land on a shore, not submerged, by the waves with vigorous stroke far from the impious crowds persistently following the straightening path of the purified soul where the splendour of the divinity surrounds you the home of justice far from contamination in the holy sanctuary of initiation when in the past you struggled to escape the bitter waves when blood-stained life eddied around you with repulsive currents in the midst of the waters dazed by frightening tumult even then the divinities often showed you your end and often when your spirit was about to stray from the right path the immortals beckoned you back to the real end the eternal path enlightening your eyes with radiant beams in the midst of gloomy darkness no deep slumber closed your eyelids and when shaken by the eddies of matter you sought to withdraw your eyes from the night that pressed down upon them you beheld beauties hidden from any who devote themselves to the study of wisdom now that you have discarded your cloak of mortality and ascended Climbing out from the tombs of your angelic soul, you have entered the choir of divinities, where breathes a gentle zephyr. There dwell friendship and delightful desire, ever accompanied by pure joy. There may one quench one's thirst with divine ambrosia. There, bound by the ties of love, one breathes a gentle air under a tranquil sky there dwell the sons of jupiter who lived in the golden age the brothers Minos and rhadamanthus the just Iacus, the divine plato the virtuous pythagoras and all those who formed the band of immortal love and who by birth belong to the most blessed of divinities their soul tastes continual joy amidst perpetual feasts and you blessed man after having fought many a valiant fight in the midst of chaste angels you have achieved eternal felicity here o muses let us close this hymn in honour of Plotinus. cease the mazes of the dancing of the graceful choir this is what my golden lyre had to say of this eternally blessed man. 23. Personal Characteristics of Plotinus The Ecstatic Trances. This oracle, pieced out of numerous quotations, says, in some now lost lines, perhaps, that Plotinus was kindly, affable, indulgent, gentle, such as, indeed, we knew him in personal intercourse. It also mentions that this philosopher slept little, that his soul was pure, ever aspiring to the divinity, that he loved wholeheartedly, and that he did his utmost to liberate himself from terrestrial domination, to escape the bitter waves of this cruel life that is how this divine man who by his thoughts often aspired to the first principle to the divinity superior to intelligence climbing the degrees indicated by plato in his banquet beheld the vision of the formless divinity which is not merely an idea being founded on intelligence and the whole intelligible world i myself had the blessed privilege of approaching this divinity, uniting myself to him when I was about sixty-eight years of age. That is how the goal that Plotinus sought to achieve seemed to him located near him. Indeed, his goal, his purpose, his end, was to approach the supreme divinity, and to unite himself with the divinity while i dwelt with him he had four times the bliss of reaching that goal not merely potentially but by a real and unspeakable experience the oracle adds that the divinities frequently restored Plotinus to the right path when he strayed from it enlightening his eyes by radiant splendour that is why it may truthfully be said that Plotinus composed his works while in contemplation of the divinities and enjoying that vision thanks to this sight that your vigilant eyes had of both interior and exterior things you have in the words of the oracle gazed at many beauties that would hardly be granted to many of those who study philosophy indeed the contemplation of men may be superior to human contemplation, but compared to divine knowledge, if it be of any value whatever, it nevertheless could not penetrate the depths reached by the glances of the divinities. Till here the oracle had limited itself to indicating what Plotinus had accomplished while enclosed in the vesture of the body. It then proceeds to say that he arrived at the assembly of the divinities where dwell friendship, delightful desire, joy, and love communing with the divinity, where the sons of God, Minos, Radamanthus, and Aeacus, are established as the judges of souls. Plotinus joined them, not to be judged, but to enjoy their intimacy, as did the higher divinities. There, indeed, dwell Plato, Pythagoras, and the other sages who formed the choir of immortal love. Reunited with their families, the blessed angels spend their life in continued festivals and joys, enjoying the perpetual beatitude granted them by divine goodness. 24. Contents of the various Enneads. This is what I have to relate of the life of Plotinus. He had, however, asked me to arrange and revise his works. I promised both him and his friends to work on them. I did not judge it wise to arrange them in confusion chronologically, so I imitated Apollodorus of Athens and Andronicus the Peripatetician the former collecting in ten volumes the comedies of Epicarmus, and the latter dividing into treatises the works of Aristotle and Theophrastus, gathering together the writings that referred to the same subject. Likewise, I grouped the fifty-four books of Plotinus into six groups of nine, Enneads, in honour of the perfect numbers six and nine. Into each Ennead I have gathered the books that treat of the same matter, in each case prefixing the most important ones. The first Ennead contains the writings that treat of morals. They are. 1. What is an animal? What is a man? 53. 2. Of the virtues? 19. 3 of Dialectics, 20, 4, of Happiness, 46, 5, does Happiness consist in Duration, 36, 6, of Beauty, 1, 7, of the First Good and of the Other Goods, 54, 8, of the Origin of Evils, 51. 9. Of reasonable suicide. 16. Such are the topics considered in the first Ennead, which thus contains what relates to morals. In the second Ennead are grouped the writings that treat of physics, of the world, and of all that it contains. They are 1. Of the world. 40. 2. Of the circular motion of the heavens. 14. 3. Of the influence of the stars. 52. 4. Of both matters, sensible and intelligible. 12. 5. Of potentiality and actuality. 25. 6. Of quality and of form. 17. 7. Of mixture, where there is total penetration. 37. 8. Of vision, why do distant objects seem smaller? 35. 9. Against those who say that the demiurgic creator is evil, as well as the world itself. Against the Gnostics. 33. The third Ennead, which also relates to the world, contains the different speculations referring thereto. Here are its component writings. 1. Of destiny. 3. 2. Of providence, the first. 47. 3. Of providence, the second. 48. 4. Of the guardian spirit who was allotted to us, 15, 5, of love, fifty, six, 6, of the impassibility of incorporeal things, 26, 7, of eternity of time, 45, 8, of nature, of contemplation, and of the one, 30, 9, different speculations 13 we have gathered these three enneads into one single body we have assigned the book on the guardian spirit who has been allotted to us in the third ennead because this is treated in a general manner and because it refers to the examination of conditions characteristic of the production of man for the same reason the book on love was assigned to the first Ennead. The same place has been assigned to the book on eternity and time, because of the observations which, in this Ennead, refer to their nature. Because of its title, we have put in the same group the book on nature, contemplation and the one. After the books that treat of the world, the fourth Ennead contains those that refer to the soul they are, 1. Of the nature of the soul, the first, 4. 2. Of the nature of the soul, the second, 21. 3. Problems about the soul, the first, 27. 4. Problems about the soul, the second, 28. 5. Problems about the soul, the third, or a vision. 29. 6. Of sensation of memory. 41. 7. Of the immortality of the soul. 2. 8. Of the descent of the soul into the body. 6. 9. Do not all souls form a single soul? 8. The fourth Ennead, therefore, contains all that relates to psychology. The fifth Ennead treats of intelligence. Each book in it also contains something about the principle superior to intelligence, and also about the intelligence characteristic of the soul, and about ideas. 1. About the three principal hypostatic forms of existence. 10. Two of generation and of the order of things posterior to the first, eleven three of the hypostatic forms of existence that transmit knowledge and of the superior principle forty nine four how that which is posterior to the first proceeds from it of the one seven five the intelligibles are not outside of intelligence. Of the good. 32. 6. The superessential principle does not think. Which is the first thinking principle? Which is the second? 24. 7. Are there ideas of individuals? 18. 8. Of intelligible beauty. 31. 9 of intelligence, of ideas, and of existence. 5. We have gathered the fourth and fifth Ennead into a single volume. Of the sixth Ennead we have formed a separate volume, so that all the writings of Plotinus might be divided into three parts, of which the first contains three Enneads, the second two, and the third a single Ennead. Here are the books that belong to the 6th Ennead, and to the 3rd volume. 1. Of the kinds of existence, the first, 42. 2. Of the kinds of existence, the second, 43. 3. Of the kinds of existence, the third, 44. 4. The one single existence is everywhere present in its entirety. 1st. 22. 5. The one single existence is everywhere present in its entirety. 2nd. 23. 6. Of numbers. 34. 7. Of the multitude of ideas, of the good. 38. 8. Of the will, and of the liberty of the one, 39. 9 of the good or of the one nine this is how we have distributed into six enneads the fifty-four books of Plotinus. we have added to several of them commentaries without following any regular order to satisfy our friends who desired to have explanations of several points we have also made headings of each book following the chronological order with the exception of the book on the beautiful whose state of composition we do not know besides we have not only written up separate summaries for each book but also arguments which are contained among the summaries now we shall try to punctuate each book and to correct the mistakes whatever else we may have to do besides Will easily be recognized by a reading of these books. End of Life of Plotinus by Porphyry